0: Hiberno Goethe, German Irish Conversations. Join me, St. Pauli fan and former Dusseldorfer Kieran Murray, in conversation with my guests as we explore the connecting moments of German and Irish life. We delve into the many aspects of arts, language, and life across cultures. What do musicians, dancers, artists, and writers pick up from both cultures? And how are they inspired and enriched by the other? Hiberno Goethe. German-Irish Conversations is for all listeners who like to go and think beyond borders. This podcast is supported by the goethe Institute Dublin. My guest today is Arndt Witte, Professor of Modern Languages at Maynooth University, and also, and perhaps more importantly,
1: my former lecturer. That's right, yeah. I hope you learned a lot of German (laughs) (laughs) some years ago. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah, I did. I did learn a lot of German and, um, and I'd like to think that I, that, I, that I kept with it as well. Mm, yeah, it's,
1: it's always important to maintain your foreign language or languages by using yeah. them regularly. I yeah, think.
0: it sounds like we're going straight into an ad for the Goethe Institute <laughs> uh, <but> here. Possibly. <laughs> or
1: Minuth University, who yeah. knows?
0: <laughs> Let's go back and tell me, uh, uh, when, when you came to Ireland, how did that happen and, and why did that happen? Was it, was it always your dream destination?
1: Well, not necessarily, uh, but I think I settled quite well here in Ireland. No, I I grew up in a very small village in Lower Saxony called Hiddigwader Moor. Uh, I think none of your listeners has ever heard of that. And uh, in Hiddigwader Moor, for example, it was in the Borg, as the name says already, Moor. There was no running water when we were living there, so we had to pump up the water and then it had to be filtered through a huge barrel with different layers of sand and stones and so on. So I grew up there, and there was only one school and classes one to nine in one classroom with one teacher, which in German is called Einklassige Volksschule, so one classroom people's school, directly translated. And nowadays, uh, you don't find any of those anymore. And even when I attended that school in in the 60s, 1960s, I think it was one in the last of Germany, one of the last of these uh, the, schools in Germany.
0: Yeah. It's not exactly the the usual Irish picture of Germany, uh, the small village with no running water. The,
1: that's <laughs> right. Yeah, that was in the early sixties. Uh, that village Hidivaramor got then running water in 1964. So so from then on we were okay. <laughs> but growing up there, I never had any connections to the world outside of Hidivaramor, so to speak. But uh, then I went to grammar school, so I had to go to the next biggest town, which is Oldenburg, and there I also learned English. And I developed some sort of love for English, not necessarily the language, but the English-speaking world, not only England, but also United States. Ireland to a certain extent, although we didn't learn anything about Ireland at school. But this was also supported by the music at the, at the time. So Rolling Stones, uh, Bob Dylan, Jimi Hendrix, and so on. That was the music we so were did listening So you,
0: did you learn the language to learn the lyrics of the songs? Uh,
1: yeah, I even bought uh, books that, where the songs were printed. And I remember buying a book, uh, Poems by Jim Morrison, so the lead singer, singer of The Doors. So that is how I got in touch with English, the language. Then I studied not English, but history and uh, German at Hanover University. Uh, From then on, I went to West Berlin to do teacher training in history and uh, German.
0: What era was that in West Berlin?
1: I was living in Fasanenstraße, just off Kurfürstendamm, nowadays one of the top addresses Mm -hmm. in Berlin. Um, and i was teaching in lichtenrade which is on the one of the most southern parts of west berlin so directly on the wall and i did my zweites my teaching examination zweites staatsexamen and then it didn't go on no matter what mark you got what no matter what grade you got with german and history you could not go on to become a teacher So even before doing my uh, examination, I applied then to the German academic exchange service for a teaching assistantship at a university in England. And I was fortunate enough to be selected for that. So I went then in the mid-1980s to Bristol and I was teaching there, third level German. And I liked it uh, very much, but that contract was limited to two years, so after two years I could not continue. But I applied then again through the German Academic Exchange Service to a post in Nigeria, and I got that. So I spent uh, four years in Nigeria.
0: So was it your dream to always travel to Nigeria?
1: Not really, no. (laughs) I had not heard much about Nigeria, and if so, not many positive things. But I must say, I, I very much liked my stay in Nigeria. Although, again, we didn't have running water in Nigeria where I was living, on campus, that is, in Ibadan. Ibadan has a population of 6 million, but again, no running water. I liked it very much because the students were very gifted. They were used to languages. In Nigeria, there are more than, four, more than 500 in the meantime, uh, different languages.
0: And that part of Nigerian that you were in... Mm-hmm. Was that, you know, the way the, the Irish connection was very strong to Biafra?
1: Where, where I was, that was Yoruba. So that yeah. was more the government side, yeah. so not yeah. the Igbo side. So. Um, but even there, where I was living, there were a lot of uh, Irish missionaries. Okay. So, and of course, also Guinness, the, at the time, the third largest brewery uh, of Guinness was located in Nigeria. And there were many Irish people employed there as well. Okay. And
0: is, is that some. where you first developed your taste for Guinness and was that what drew you
1: to Ireland? <laughs> I could support that myth but <laughs> unfortunately not because the, the Guinness in Nigeria tastes completely different from the Guinness here. No I think I only developed a taste of uh, or a taste for Guinness here in uh, Dublin. But what I developed was a taste for teaching at third level. So I wanted to stay in third level rather than second level teacher training and so on. So after having returned to Germany in 1990, I think, I did my PhD at Hamburg University. And then then I applied for posts that were advertised in Die Zeit, posts uh, in third-level institutions, universities, polytechnics in uh, Great Britain and Ireland. Then I was fortunate enough to be invited for interview in Ireland. uh, And that was the first day I set foot on this island in 1992. And the rest is history, as they say. When you arrived here then, did you know much about Ireland? Not really. I thought it would be very similar to, and I shouldn't say that probably because it isn't England, Uh, I expected something very similar to England, but it wasn't. It was different, in a positive sense different, because it is much more personal here. The interaction is much more personal. The expectations are as high as anywhere else. But uh, the methodology, how things are being done, it's much more mellow. It's not so harsh or punishing as in other countries. So I liked that very much. Before I came here, I knew a little bit about Irish literature, James Joyce, Ulysses, and other texts. Yeah,
0: Take me back to when you first discovered English when you started to learn English and apart from the Rolling Stones and Jimi Hendrix Mm -hmm. uh, were there books, were there writers and poets that you were drawn to?
1: Not really because we mainly learned with short stories the only book I remember and I liked very much is Salinger's Catcher in the Rye which of, of course is American but that was a brilliant book. I th- I understand it was in Island as well, but some parts of the teachers did not like that book because it was, well, <laughs> <Yeah, laughs> felt yeah. not to be appropriate in parts at least.
0: Yeah, I imagine the Irish censor of that era yeah. wasn't pleased with, yeah, that's with, right. with some of that.
1: Yeah, The same, by the way, happened when a colleague of mine developed a teaching book for German under the communicative approach for the international market. And he came here to Ireland, to the goethe Institute, in fact, to introduce it to the Irish teachers uh, and interested people. And it was not adopted here because there were drawn images of naked people, one man, one woman, to teach about the parts of the body. So that was not accepted (laughs) at the time. That was in the late 70s or early 80s.
0: Did you find when you came to Ireland, particularly I suppose Maynooth, did you find that Ireland was a much more Catholic country than than what you had been used to? It was, yeah, I
1: must say. And also in the class where you were, which was my first class that I taught in Maynooth, uh, I think I tried to discuss controversial topics like abortion, like divorce and so on. And much to my surprise there was no resonance for that so I it fell completely on deaf ears and I couldn't understand why but now I think I understand why that was and uh, that was the Catholic influence
0: yeah yeah I suppose um, in the early 90s Maynooth was still part of it I I can't remember the exact breakup but it was a kind of ecclesiastical college St. Patrick's College was still Mm -hmm. it wasn't Maynooth University
1: no uh Minus University or NUI Minus was only founded in 1997. So okay. then we split off from St Patrick's College. Yeah, so yeah, there there was a certain let's say Catholic influence, but that was not in any way an oppressive uh, influence on us. So the uh, novels we taught, we could select, and there was no interference whatsoever. Yeah. Yeah, They weren't
0: using um, great German Catholic writers or anything.
1: Well, <laughs> Heinrich Böll, for example, is, <laughs> is a good uh, yeah. example for a Catholic writer. Yeah. But, we, of course, we also taught other writers, other novels. Yeah. And much to my surprise, uh, the person I replaced him in Luz was a GDR lector. I'm not sure if you remember him. But the GDR sent, obviously, before my arrival... Lectures to Menus, uh, not Menus University, Saint Patrick's College Menus, and I found that strange because yeah. they and I saw that the books they were using to teach the language, so they taught a lot about the socialist system mm-hmm. in the GDR, okay. like landwirtschaftliche Produktionsgenossenschaft and stuff like that.
0: <laughs> well, maybe the GDR and and, um, and Catholic Ireland had a lot of dogma in common. Their their approach to teaching, possibly, <laughs> yeah from the opposite ends of the <laughs> yeah.
1: political spectrum. Yeah. Yes.
0: Do you think then that were you, were you born to be uh, a third-level lecturer? Was, was teaching at third level what you really wanted to do?
1: Yeah, what I originally wanted to do was teaching uh, at second level, obviously. And I only devel- de- developed this interest or love for the third-level sector in Bristol and Ibadan Nigeria. And I always felt very comfortable with that because the, the stuff you're teaching is more challenging for me. Or for us as lecturers but also for students the quality of student is on a slightly higher level simply because students tend to be older and tend to be more uh, educated to a higher degree so to speak compared to second level
0: Are there kind of particular courses that you really enjoyed teaching and, and ones that uh, less so what, what was your kind of area that you felt most at home?
1: I joined uh, St. Patrick's College as an applied linguist so not as a literature person So I was teaching also literature at the beginning. I liked that as well. But my focus was on language teaching, so linguistics, not only language teaching as such, but teaching about the language, so to speak, and uh, what language can mean for you psychologically, what it can mean for you professionally, what it can mean for you culturally, how it changes your identity, and so on. That is really the field that I used to love and that I still do love at the moment. Is that the kind of material where you do
0: research? That's
1: right. Yeah. My, yeah. my research area is intercultural competence, meaning how your competence in terms of interaction, in terms of self-analysis and so on changes if you learn a foreign language to a good degree of competence. So this does not concern learning a foreign language at beginner's level, but at an advanced level or at least intermediary level that you then see yourself or at least can see yourself through a different conceptual system with different values attached to it because every language uh, has certain values attached to it through the culture, so to speak, that it represents. Language is the central semiotic medium of a culture. So, in other words, if you learn a foreign language, you also learn about the foreign culture. And if you learn uh, about the foreign culture, then that has the influence of changing your identity to a certain degree and changing your view on the world to a certain degree. If I may say that, uh, I think Goethe said, Wer fremde Sprachen nicht kennt, weiß nichts von seiner eigenen. So those who do not know about foreign languages, languages know nothing about their own. And the same is true. could also say those who know nothing about foreign languages and cultures know nothing about their own, including their own self-analysis or self-constitution, cognitive self-constitution.
0: So I'm probably making a bit of a jump, but is it possible to say from that that uh, people who are bilingual or trilingual are more likely to be open-minded?
1: Yes. I think that uh, in the meantime is, gen- is, is a general, generally accepted view okay. and uh, has been supported by and research.
0: Yeah. And does that hold, if you look at dictators and things, were they all monolingual or were there famous yeah.
1: dictators who could speak a range of languages? Oof, that is a big question. I haven't thought about that. I mean, Hitler, I'm sure, didn't speak a foreign language <laughs> other than <laughs> German, and he <laughs> shouted... Uh, a lot in that language. I mean, even if there are, I think then the political interest and self-interest overrules those aspects of openness and interculturality. Yeah, I, mean, I do
0: think one of the leading Nazis was Himmler or something was his wife famously Swedish
1: yeah, that's right. Yeah, but I'm not sure if Himmler himself spoke Swedish. Yeah, uh, I doubt it.
0: And I'm, I'm guessing he probably thought the Swedes were more or less Germans anyway. Uh, exactly, <laughs> that was the intention
1: that the Nazis had. Yeah. yeah.
0: Do you find then is it does that language and culture that that strong link? Is
1: that something that uh, that you can get across to students? Is that something that you can teach with students? I think so, yes. And the central element there is the year abroad, because you only learn a foreign language to a high degree of competence if you're immersed in that language for a certain period of time. And the period of time should be one year or longer. Basically, it's a lifelong project. But when you are living uh, in the foreign country or target language country, for one year or longer, then your view on the world changes your identity and the way you are doing things changes as well without you necessarily noticing that. But when you come back then to Ireland in our case, then your friends notice that you are strange, you have changed. And you also notice then that your friends and your family, they act strangely from your point of view. That is called the reverse culture shock or the re-entry shock. Um, that many students most students experience after having spent the year abroad and having engaged with the foreign language and culture intensively
0: if the young student goes off to to Germany and they mm-hmm. spend a the year there and they absorb the culture and the language mm-hmm. uh, the culture through the language and stuff what kind of what kind of traits would they return with what in what way might they be changed?
1: They might be changed in their in their daily life, for example. They might uh, consume different food. This is a very superficial level. Uh, and they might structure their day differently. They might acquire a sense of punctuality. I mean, this is, st- <laughs> is a stereotype, obviously. <laughs> um, but more importantly, they might see themselves differently. And that is reflected then in the way they behave. It is also reflected in their body, so to speak, because the body changes as well. I mean, intercultural competence ideally also should affect the lived body. That is, it should be sedimented in the lived body experience or memory. So to tease that
0: out a bit more then, does that also mean that if you don't have the second language, if you, if you don't go that far into it, that you can never really understand another culture?
1: I would say so. I mean, there are anthropologists, of course, who uh, research other cultures without knowing the language. So they are then dependent on a translator. Uh, And there were famous cases in the past, in the 40s and 50s, where the translators intentionally mistranslated stuff, but the anthropologists took it for the truth or for real. This cannot happen if you know the foreign language. So in my view, at least, you can only be... Competent, really competent in the other culture, when you also know the other the the language that represents that culture.
0: Okay, it it sounds a bit of a challenge for the great European project. Then, in order to know our European neighbours, a lot lot of
1: languages to learn. That's right. Yeah, I mean, hence the European Commission introduced the policy of mother tongue plus two, so every citizen in the in the European Union should speak not only the mother tongue and one foreign language, but the mother tongue and two other languages. Here in Ireland, the argument goes, if the first language is Irish, then the second language is English, and vice versa. But there should be a third language, then yeah. mother tongue plus two. Yeah. And the third language could be French, could be Chinese, could be German. How's your, how's
0: your third language?
1: My third language isn't great. I mean, at, at school, we didn't have a choice. We had to do English and Latin. There was no choice. But later in life, after I concluded my postgraduate studies, I traveled to Central America for half a year. So Mexico, Guatemala, and so on. I really wanted to go to Nicaragua after the revolution. Um, and... I learned then, uh, on my own, I learned Spanish for half a year, four hours every day, including weekends. And in Latin America, or Central America, I should say, I could then engage in political discussions with Sandinistas, for example, in Nicaragua, and also with other people. So that was, so to speak, my third language, although the level of competence wasn't the highest. Um, And I still, if it comes to it, some years ago, I was in Brazil, in Brasilia, and at the hotel reception, there was no one who could speak English or German, obviously, but with the little that I remembered of Spanish, I could get by. Yeah. Did you want to engage
0: the receptionist in a discussion on dialectic Marxism in, in Central? I would have laughed to, but
1: unfortunately, <laughs> my Portuguese is non-existent yeah, yeah. and my Spanish wasn't yeah. su- sufficient enough. I
0: was trying to draw you back again on your on your third language a little bit to Nigeria, because uh, your wife is originally from Nigeria. She is, yes. Yeah. So did, did you then pick up any of the Nigerian language, Igbo or Hauser or whatever, which...
1: Yeah, the, the region where Ibadan is located is Yoruba land. Okay, Yoruba then, is the yeah, second yeah. largest language in Nigeria in terms of speakers after Hausa. But Yoruba is a very tonal language. For example, there's one word consisting of three letters, O-K-O, and you can pronounce it in eight different ways, oku, Oko, oku, and so on, meaning eight vastly different things. I hardly could hear the difference between the eight different pronunciations of okko or "oko" and so on, not to speak of being able to reproduce those sounds adequately. I had some phrases that I learned, but I really did not learn the language as such.
0: Then when you were raising your own children, I presume you, you spoke German to them?
1: Yes, uh, we have three children. All three children were born here in Ireland. Uh, and... I spoke German to them from birth. My wife spoke English to them from birth, so they grew up bilingually. But since I was the only contact person they had who spoke German to them, or the main com- contact person, they unlearned German, so to speak, because their uh, social uh, surroundings were English-speaking, even in the kindergarten and so on. So at some stage, they, when I spoke German to them, they answered in English and they said, Daddy, we we do not understand what you are saying so I knew okay now now there's time for another sabbatical so I took a year out uh, which we spent in Hamburg and the children uh, attended the local school there so that reignited their German so to speak and they then since then they're speaking German without an accent but in order to make sure we sent each of the three children in their transition year back to Germany to a school in Germany and were they pleased with that? Did they, they loved Germany. They always loved Germany. Um, and they were looking forward to that, yes. Otherwise, I wouldn't have followed up, so, yeah. so to speak.
0: Their identity must be an interesting mix because yes. obviously being half Irish with a Nigerian mother yeah. and their grandparents then in Germany and yeah. in, in Nigeria, did they have cousins in, in Nigeria?
1: No, my wife's parents died a long time before we met. My parents, in the meantime, also passed away. Um, but our children met my parents in Germany. The link to Nigeria isn't that strong because there were no grandparents. And our kids also didn't learn Yoruba or any other Nigerian language. They learned well Irish, German, and uh, English, obviously. And th- their identities are, I would say, fluid. They are fluid in between those three parameters. The The African thing... I think, comes in because of their complexion. I mean, of course, they're slightly Mm -hmm. darker-skinned. And therefore, here in Dublin, they're often identified as African. Okay.
0: And it must be unusual because I presume they were born at a time before there was many immigrants to Ireland at all. Yeah, that's right. I mean, back in the early kind of 90s, when when I was at university with you, Mm. um, I don't think there was any Nigerians, I think.
1: When we moved here and my wife was walking in the street. She was sometimes approached by people asking her, was she the person that Gay Byrne interviewed the night before? Because they thought if there is an African, it must a female African, it might be her. But you're right, there were hardly any Africans, not to mention female Africans around. In the meantime, there are many Africans here, many Nigerians. That also means many shops, for example. My wife was desperate before these shops were set up here for African food, for example, or for African to have the hair done in the African way and so on. That wasn't possible in the early 90s, but now it is.
0: Culturally, I suppose, uh, it must have had an influence on your own kind of sensibility to African things.
1: That's right, yeah. I mean, when I was in Nigeria, I wasn't disengaged, so to speak. I didn't hold back with talking to everyone, if possible, and so on, in English, obviously, um, so I had many Af- uh, Nigerian friends, colleagues and friends. I tried to immerse in the Nigerian culture as well, or Yoruba culture. So I read Wu Soyinka, the first black African Nobel Prize winner for literature, Chinua Achebe, obviously, um, and others. And I remember once in the university, there was the opera Wonyosi, which is a play that uh, Shojinka based on Brecht's Three Penny Opera that was performed there with a small student orchestra, and Shojinka himself was there. He was in attendance. But then suddenly, that was in the evening, suddenly there was no lights because there was no electricity, and then the orchestra continued playing for about 20 minutes till the lights came back. (laughs) Um, So that was a very impressive, let's say, uh, performance.
0: You know, when you're saying that if you cannot speak the other language to quite a degree, that you cannot really understand that culture. So Mm. do you think there's a part of your sensibility with with Africa with Nigeria that without having a more in-depth understanding of the language
1: that you can't really get? To a certain degree, yes, that may be the case. But obviously the lingua franca in Nigeria is English. So English is the national language. Other than uh, English, they don't have a national language. They have 525 or so other languages, uh, indigenous languages. And that is something which might create a problem because English is, uh, Ngugi Wationgo said, a Kenyan writer and philosopher, he said, English is the cultural time bomb in Africa. It's a cultural time bomb because, as we said before, attached to the English language, there are certain cultural wa- values, there are certain beliefs and so on, which have nothing to do with Africa as such. It was imposed on Africa. So Nugi Ngugi wa Tiongo and others then reverted back to write their novels in the local language, I think in his case Kizuahili. The problem then is that the readership is massively reduced and also financially it has a negative impact. And I think that is why, for example, Shoyinka continued to write in English. He had a much bigger impact there.
0: Yeah, I suppose it's a huge challenge to people writing in the Irish language that they're writing for quite a small population base. Mm -hmm. I think it was the writer Alan Titley said about Irish language poetry, never has so much been written for so few.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, possibly in... Mm -hmm. In African (laughs) languages.
0: I I presume that's it, that that is a bit of a problem because it's so important to have English and it's so important as a Mm. world communicative language and it's so important for commerce and life to be able to speak English. But for a lot of Africans, it's also the colonial language. Are there still levels of resentment or something that English is so dominant and has perhaps pushed a lot of the local languages to the fringes?
1: Well, in, in certain intellectual circles, let's say, yeah, for sure. And therefore in Nigeria, at my time, so in the 1990s, they tried to artificially create a Nigerian national language based on the three big languages, Hausa, Yoruba, and Ibo, uh, And the word to come is wa. In one language, zo in the other and bia in the other. So the language was supposed to be called wazobia but that never took off because you cannot artificially construct a language and then impose it on the people. That is not possible. So it was a
0: kind of an Esperanto kind of experiment?
1: Sort of, yeah. It never never took off. I think it was an idea. Another idea was to import Kiswahili from East Africa to West Africa, but again, that wouldn't have made any sense as such. But Um, uh, you are right, if I may say that, that English is an imperial force in that it pushes out or even pushes extinction, many smaller languages. In Nigeria, there are some smaller languages that are only spoken by one or 2,000 people, especially in the Niger Delta, for example. And the next biggest regional languages then tend to take over, and on a national level, English, obviously.
0: Perhaps on that topic, because I forgot to ask you to read a piece earlier. You could read a piece in, in English for us. In a way, this is about a mix and a mishmash of languages too. So perhaps you can do the introduction better than I can.
1: Okay, so the piece I selected is from Hugo Hamilton, The Speckled People. I think in the meantime, a very well-known book, a very well-written book, which I love very much. And the topic here is that Hugo Hamilton, his brother and sister, they were born in Ireland to a German mother, to an Irish father. The Irish father insisted on speaking only Irish, not English. The German mother couldn't speak Irish or English. So the mother spoke only German with the children, and the father only spoke Irish, intentionally only Irish to the children. And uh, I think he beat the children, according to the book, when they wanted to speak English, because English was uh, considered to be, well, un-Irish, and therefore not allowed So the little piece I selected is from the beginning of the book, and it goes as follows. When you're small, you know nothing. You don't know where you are or who you are and what questions to ask. Then one day, my mother and father did a funny thing. First of all, my mother sent a letter home to Germany and asked one of her sisters to send over new trousers for my brother and me. She wanted us to wear something German, lederhosen. When the parcel arrived, we couldn't wait to put them on and run outside. We ran all the way down the lane at the back of the houses. My mother couldn't believe her eyes. She stood back and clapped her hands together and said, we were real boys now. No matter how much we climbed on walls or trees, she said, these German leather trousers were indestructible, and so they were. Then my father wanted us to wear something Irish too. He went straight out and bought hand-knit Aran sweaters. Big, white, rope-patterned, woolen sweaters from the west of Ireland that were also indestructible. So my brother and I ran out wearing lederhosen and Aran sweaters, smelling of rough wool and new leather, Irish on top and German below. We were indestructible. We could slide down granite blocks, we could fall on nails and sit on glass, Nothing could sting us now, and we ran down the lane faster than ever before, brushing past nettles as high as our shoulders. When you are small, you are like a piece of paper with nothing written on it. My father writes down his name in Irish, and my mother writes down her name in German, and there's a blank space left over for all the people outside who speak English. We are special because we speak Irish and German, and we like the smell of these new clothes. My mother says it's like being at home again, and my father says your language is your home, and your country is your language, and your language is your flag. But you don't want to be special. Out there in Ireland, you want to be the same as everyone else, not an Irish speaker, not a German, or a coward or a Nazi. One day, down to the shops, they call us the Nazi brothers. They say we are guilty and I go home and tell my mother I did nothing. But she shakes her head and says, I can't say that. I can't deny anything and I can't fight back and I can't say I'm innocent. She says it's not important to win. Instead, she teaches us to surrender, to walk straight by and ignore them. So that's the little piece. And I find this fascinating uh, because it touches upon aspects that I'm researching, the intercultural aspect of it. So Irish on top and German below, for example, uh, reflecting the combining of these aspects in one person. But uh, Hamilton also mentioned a blank space left over for all the people outside who speak English. So English, obviously, is the big linguistic elephant in the room. And towards the end of the book, the father has to admit that English is also spoken in uh, Ireland, to put it mildly, And the children then uh, also are allowed to speak English in front of him.
0: Yeah, I I read the book myself and and, uh, I'm bringing up my children in Irish or perhaps I should Mm -hmm. say I brought them up in Irish at this stage. And uh, yeah, not that I ever beat them, but there there are times when the level of insistence that Mm. Irish is the language at home and Irish is the language. That we will speak together. And I think, in a simple practical way, even you said there comes a time when your children didn't speak German back to you. Yeah. And certainly there was a time when my children spoke English to me and I spoke Irish mm. to them. Yeah. But uh, yeah, uh, after having read the book, you do question a bit how far you go and how much yeah. are you borderline fanatic yourself yeah. on, on, on doing this, you know? Yeah.
1: But I think, as an Irish person or as a person in Ireland, even, Irish is. The national language. It is the first national language, and Irish is the language which has all the cultural values, Irish cultural values, values and beliefs attached to it, not necessarily English. Um, of course, there's something like Hiberno English, which is a mixture, so to speak, to a certain degree. But I would find it a pity if the language Irish is being pushed to the side more than it has been. And I think a positive uh, development in recent years or in the last two decades is the increasing setting up of Gael schools, of Irish schools, where the medium of instruction is Irish, not English. Personally, I find this is a very positive development and a development that should be supported even more than it is now.
0: Yeah, it's certainly um, it's very interesting, OK, to see the influence of the Gales school and how many children leaving uh, at 18... Can speak Irish to mm. quite a good degree of fluency, mm. and what happens to it after that? I suppose there's still elements where it is a language inside an institute, and, yeah. and not so much an outside and a public language. It's, yeah, that's there's hard. still a challenge there.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's this short film. I'm not. Sh- I'm sure you know it. I've forgot the name now. Where an Irish, not in Irish, a Chinese person is learning Irish. Yeah. Uh, in uh. China and then comes to Ireland to visit Ireland yeah. speaking only Irish but yeah. not English and no one can understand him uh, until he uh, goes uh, into a pub one day and there's the, Frank Kelly the character played by Frank Kelly yeah. sitting at the bar and he then speaks Irish to this person and the barman then Asked the other one, "Did you know that Paddy can speak Chinese?" <laughs> <laughs> and I, I mean, that is really good humor. But yeah. it also tells you a lot about the status of Irish in at least Dublin.
0: Yeah, I can't remember the name of that film either, but it is quite a famous one. Okay, it is.
1: Yeah, yeah. and I, th- I think in a similar vein, I think the Irish Times some years ago, five or maybe ten years ago. They sent a reporter, a journalist, through Dublin, so to speak. And he visited restaurants, he visited pubs, and so on. He was thrown out of all of them. The instruction to him was only speak Irish, do not speak English. And the only people who were looking after him were then the new Irish, Polish, because they thought there's another person who cannot speak English here. So they took care of him to a certain degree. But he failed in his efforts to communicate with Irish people in Dublin, in Irish.
0: Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, it's a very tricky one.
1: Let me bring you back a little bit, because we were talking about university.
0: After your years in university, do you think that universities have changed much since you first were teaching there?
1: Well, I think so. I mean, I've been teaching, if you include uh, Bristol and Ibadan, for almost 40 years in universities. And what I have noticed is is certain commodification of education, including third-level education, So what we are supposed to do now as lecturers is we have to create modules, we have to define learning outcomes for these modules, we have to stipulate exactly how we will reach these learning outcomes, and so on. So that, I would say, is a certain commodification. Students obviously learn how to reach the learning outcomes but it takes a lot away, especially from literature and from the aura of the language as such. In my view, it would be more important to emphasize the more more holistic aspects of language and literature in terms of what in German is called Bildung, so a sort of forming. It is important for you as a young person to be formed by culture, represented by literature and language and also other elements, of course. So it is much more a personal journey rather than a journey into the workforce, so to speak, where your skills are commodified.
0: Why did that come about, do you think?
1: Well, I think that is part of globalization to a certain extent, uh, and globalization in the larger capitalist framework. I think here globalization has played a very negative role. Role, but that's my own views.
0: Was that a discussion that you would have had uh, in Spanish in, in Nicaragua?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I would have loved to, but in uh, nineteen when was it? Uh, nineteen eighty four or so? No, it was earlier, nineteen eighty two. There was no globalization at the time. There was only the big American neighbor trying to oppress certain countries in what they considered to be their courtyard.
0: Yeah, sometimes I think back to the kind of Latin American world. And it was almost then so much of the global geopolitical war kind of went mm-hmm. on in yeah. Latin America. It was the front line yeah. and it has kind of faded entirely. Sometimes I talk to my children about El Salvador and Nicaragua and mm. they don't even know
1: where they are. Uh, don't yeah. mean anything. That has faded. But I mean, obviously, Daniel Ortega is still around. I mean, he was the Sandinista leader at the time very left-wing, and he still is the president, but now extremely oppressive yeah, and yeah. anti-democratic. Yeah, sadly,
0: he should have died young and become a bit of a hero
1: like Che yeah, Guevara or Elvis. Possibly. <laughs> might have been better for his uh, fame. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's similar in Venezuela. I mean, Maduro, for example, also who is a pretty oppressive line, and I find that deplorable in that democratic elements are being suppressed. And that was my hope at the time when I traveled to Nicaragua, that there might be a third way of a sort of democratic socialism. I mean, we had the Eastern Bloc countries, we had the Soviet Union. To us, they were not left-wing countries, they were oppressive countries. And that is not something that we, and I count myself in there as a a freewheeling left-winger in the student movement at the time. We did not accept that and we were looking for alternatives. Nicaragua seemed to be a promising alternative at the time. And I think they did a good job for some time. But then somehow it it went all wrong.
0: I wonder sometimes whether uh, your notions of a third way and a kind of idyllic uh, left-wing world mm. was a bit dashed when you end up in a very oppressive um, Catholic Ireland of the early 1990s.
1: Well, yeah. I didn't make those <laughs> connections at all because I didn't uh, connect socialism with uh, Ireland uh, in any way. Uh, And I must say I was surprised when Bertie Ahern stood up uh, and said he was really a socialist. (laughs) That was a surprise to me, probably not only to me. Yeah, yeah. Um, No, my hopes were dashed when everything turned more authoritarian in Nicaragua and other places.
0: Let me ask you, after your years then here and obviously your children growing up here and and all that, um,
1: do you still feel very German yourself or do you feel now that you're part Irish? Well, I definitely feel part Irish, but of course I also feel German, because my as soon as I open my mouth, my language gives me away, and I'm positioned by others as German automatically. But I also feel German because of the language, because of the values attached to the language, not only German, but Northern German in particular. I mean, some years ago, we were on holidays in Bavaria, for example, and Bavaria is a lovely uh, country, lovely countryside, lovely people there. But something was missing, and I couldn't pin down what really was missing until there was an advertisement on the radio for a North German sort of TV series. And the people there were speaking on the radio with a broad Hamburg accent. And I thought, that is where I belong, not here in Bavaria. It's also Germany, obviously. But yeah, I, f- I feel very much Northern German, but I also feel to a certain extent Irish because I think in the house in Mainz where we are living that is the house where I lived longest in my whole life. I never lived before f- for such a long time in one single place.
0: When it comes to a question of Heimat mm-hmm. and that sense of
1: home or home place or something, mm-hmm. wh- where is that for you? Two weeks ago we were in Hamburg and uh, there's an exhibition in one of the museums called Heimat 10. So more than just one Heimat and that is true for new immigrants to Germany or to any uh, other place, obviously. And I think it's also true for me. I mean, I have part of my Heimat is in Germany, but the other part of my Heimat is here in Ireland. Approaching retirement now, uh, I was thinking about where I want to live after retirement, after my retirement. And I think that I would like to live, at least for the time being, continue to live here in Ireland because I feel more at home here in certain regards than in Germany. That isn't to say that I miss certain things in Germany, like the food, the way German is being spoken, my friends, obviously, my family, and so on. But I would say, in general, I'm feeling more at home here. So my Heimat here, too, if I should put a number on it, is 60% Ireland and 40% Germany.
0: And and not any tiny percent
1: Nicaraguan. (laughs) No, I I only, when I traveled there, I applied for a work visa. I didn't get a work visa, so I was only there for four weeks and in the whole of uh, Central America for half a year. I liked that as well, uh, the travels there, but it wasn't long enough to really develop any feelings of uh, Heimat.
0: Perhaps to finish up, uh, I'll bring you to another reading. And maybe before we go to the reading, you could tell us why. Trakel, is it?
1: Yeah, Georg Trakel, mm-hmm. uh, who is an Austrian uh, poet, um, a very troubled soul. And like uh, Jim Morrison, like Amy Winehouse, like Jimi Hendrix and uh, others, Janis Joplin, he died at the age of 27. So he was really young, but he produced some brilliant, in my view at least, and the views, the views of many others, brilliant uh, poems. And the one I selected for today is a relatively short uh, poem that was written in uh, 1912, so two years before the Great War. And the title is "In In den Nachmittag Geflüstert, meaning whispered in the afternoon. And this really is a poem about nothing definite. It rather uses an imagery of decay based on irrational fantasies, so it it paints an atmosphere of death and morbidity that is tying in with Trakel's general frame of mind. He was suicidal and in the end he ended his uh, own life. And also it ties in with the socio-political realities of the collapsing Donau-Monarchy at the time. So Georg Trakel in den Nachmittag geflüstert. Sonne, herbstlich dünn und zag und das Obst fällt von den Bäumen. Stille, Wohnt in blauen Räumen Einen langen Nachmittag Sterbetlänge von Metall Und ein weißes Tier bricht nieder Brauner Mädchen, raue Lieder Sind verweht im Blätterfall Stirne Gottes Farben träumt Spürt des Wahnsinns sanfte Flügel Schatten drehen sich am Hügel Von Verwesung schwarz umsäumt Dämmerung voll Ruhe und Wein Traurige Gitarren rinnen Und zur milden Lampe drinnen kehrst du wie im Traume ein. So that's the poem. Um, I translated into English. I'm not sure if I should <laughs> read out that as well. Oh yeah, go uh, on. Yeah, I think it would be good. For okay, so it's, it's a very amateurish uh, translation, obviously. So, whispered in the afternoon, autumn's sun, thin and hesitant, and fruit falls from the trees, Silence lives in blue rooms, a long afternoon. Death nails forged of metal and a white animal collapses. Chorus songs of brown girls are scattered in falling leaves. The forehead of God dreams colors, senses the soft wings of madness. Shadows swirl on the hill, darkly surrounded by decay. Twilight filled with peace and wine, the flow of sad guitars, And to the mellow lamp inside, you turn in as in a dream.
0: That's fantastic.
1: So, yeah, yeah, (coughs) I also find it very impressive how Trakel paints this atmosphere with colors, with words, with sounds. And the last stanza where uh, the lyrical subject turns inside to the mellow lamp as in a dream that could foreshadow death wish for example uh, in the context of the whole poem but it also could mean that the uh, atmosphere of death and decay and morbidity is being relieved in the last stanza so that's relatively open and it is left to the recipient to make sense of that Thanks very much for the reading okay, Thank you Kieran uh, it's a great pleasure to have you and to talk to you It's a pleasure to be here to have been here and thank you very much for, the, for having me Kieran Vielen Dank Auf Wiedersehen Thank you